Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. It is Friday. Today, we have an interview with the CEO of the container store, Kip Tyndall. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm on in Chocobaloo. This is Mark Reith, and we're very excited to have the co-founder and CEO of the Container Store, Kip Tyndall, with us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Ooh, that's nice. I like that. We're uh, streaming live from uh, Full HQ in Alexandria, Virginia, and um, you know a lot of people think that you know, and as investors, we fall into the trap of once a pump company goes public, we think it just really didn't exist before. But the Container Store has been around since. 1978, so over 35 years, uh, they've grown to over 60 locations. They they're at almost uh, they're at about 6,000 employees and three quarters of a billion in sales. So they're they're quite large and they're they're growing larger. Um, Kip's been a longtime friend of the Fool. He's uh, sat down graciously for interviews before, so we'll try not to repeat too many questions. So with that, I uh, turn it over to Mark. Well, thanks, partner in crime. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, like Anand said, we've had some interactions before. We just had lunch, which was fantastic. Ah, delicious barbecue. But back in uh, October, you actually had an uh, interview with Tom Gardner just before you guys went public. Uh, you're public now for a couple of months. Things have obviously changed pro probably quite dramatically for you. Um, so since going public, I suppose, first question is, what's been the best thing about going public? What's been the worst thing? And what's been the most surprising thing? Are we public? No. <laughs> Um, well, you know, my dad did not leave me like $3 billion, or mm -hmm. we wouldn't have had to do any of these things. But, I mean, we, we've, had, we've been with uh, Leonard Green, private equity firm, for seven and a half years. We love them. Uh, uh, they will tell you that we've, the container stores kind of turned Leonard Green into uh, the world's only um, conscious capitalist private equity firm which I think is the most hysterical oxymoron I've ever heard, a conscious capitalist private equity firm. We didn't think the odds of finding another one that we loved as much as them in a private equity firm were very good. I mean, half of all marriages end in divorce, so that it, it scared me to try to find another one like that. And, you know, they need to move on after seven and a half years. I mean, they're, they're I don't know, they don't appear to be in any hurry, but, you know, so, okay, and so you can do a strategic partner, but then you kind of subjugate your brand and management team to a larger company or a larger retailer. That didn't seem uh, right. Um, if you look at the finite choices, I actually think that uh, doing the IPO was, is, was the right choice. It was, it was totally my decision. Leonard Green didn't think that we would do that. They thought that would not be the, the path that we took. I think our management team is ready for it. It's kind of like you're out of, you got your MBA, now you're out in the real world, you're on a bigger stage, and if you do well, and if things work out correctly, it, it, it allows your culture and your management team, which I think is the best in retail, to um, have the greatest autonomy you know, o over the long term. I learned a lot by being on um, Whole Foods' board for you know, many years now, and I've really enjoyed that. And um, what in life is all good? I mean, there's, there's good and bad to it. But uh, the, the, the best part was that we did a really, um, I'm really big on getting a lot of stock in the hands of employees, and it's really hard to do that when you're private. Uh, no matter how great your partners are, there's someone, usually they're lawyers or accountants or families that are against them getting diluted so you can give more stock to your employees. And um, when you're public, it's easier because it's just standard operating procedure. Everybody does it. And so the, um, we, our directed share program during the IPO was 14% of the IPO went to our employees and long-term vendors. It's usually two or three percent, 
And we did a big stock option program at the uh, $18 you know, strike price the day before. And now over 25% of our employees own stock in the container store. And um, every full-time person with two years or more experience does. So that's been a long time dream and probably the best part of going public so far. Uh, the worst part is even these brilliant um, institutional investors and analysts don't always understand everything correctly. So we're big on communication. We think communication is leadership and as maybe you've noticed with some of our quarterly calls and everything, we're effusively trying to explain everything because that's who we are. That's how we operate. We think communication is leadership. We think all things can be solved with communication. So you kind of perceive what this analyst or what that investor doesn't understand about your business and then you try to cover all of that and so we're kind of the same we were before and it is it is funny to be so into communication and then have you know the public company things that you can't communicate but uh, I think we've adapted pretty well you mentioned the uh, the generous uh, stock options for employees who've been there uh, a decent amount of time so now you've got we a had it we had we had like guys in the distribution center that made like $60,000 in one day, it changes their, their life. I mean, it just makes you feel so great. And um, I'm sorry, but go ahead. No, that, that actually, <laughs> so, yeah. that, that, no that, bragging. that gets the question going. Yeah. So, so basically, you've got a lot of folks who maybe didn't own an individual stock before and you know, hasn't, haven't had decades to, to grizzle as a veteran stockholder, the ups and downs. Uh, you, you made a little reference to, you know, there's been a bit of a roller coaster ride since you've gone public in November. You know, the $18 IPO price almost doubled the first day, went up to about $47 at one point. Now, as we look today, it's um, in the mid to high 20s, um, depending on when you check. Um, how have your employees, you know, dealt with that? And have you had to manage or, or kind of over-communicate to, to try to um, almost teach people about the stock market as, as you go? I think, I think we did a lot of preparation work to try to um, make sure that our employees didn't have the typical sort of uninformed knee-jerk reaction that if you do an IPO, forget all this culture stuff, it's all over. And, and it's usually some smart aleck husband of an employee that's telling her that. And so we're going, actually, here's the alternatives. Here's why we think this is the best uh, way to do it, to achieve the greatest autonomy for our culture. And here's why we think this is, this is the best choice for our, our, our our culture. If my dad had just left me that three billion dollars, we wouldn't have even had to do that. But and so they they understand that, and and it's um, been extremely well received. Uh, the president of our company is almost around all sixty six stores, um, where we just in a room like this say, "Do you do you have any fears? Do you have any question?" And, and every bit of that is coming out. So there's no fear. There's no concern. I think people are seeing that this is a not bad for the culture, it's actually great for the culture, and that we're, we're trying to do, I mean, we tried to put on the world's most employee-centric IPO, you know, and I think that's the best thing for the shareholders and all the stakeholders, and, um, you know, the first 25% of any employee's productivity is, is mandatory. They have to do that to keep from getting fired, but the next 75% of any employee anywhere's productivity is uh, voluntary. They only do that in accordance, they only give that in accordance with how they feel about their culture and their boss and their product. And so I, I feel like we have our people in the 80s or 90s productivity wise as opposed to the, you know, 30s or 40s. And um, yeah. So. Well, that brings up a good question. So 2013, you guys had your 15th year on the Fortune 100 best places to work uh, list, which is fantastic. 
Um, how do you, you clearly have a lot of, yeah, look at that, clappers, fantastic, good, yes. Um, <laughs> so clearly, uh, employees are a very important part of your business, and a lot of employees buy into your principles. How do you deal with the employees who don't buy into your principles? Uh, what, what they, they think we're crazy and they leave right away. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of self-regulating. They don't, they don't last very long at all. I mean, it's... Um, um, Everybody around you is so passionately into this stuff. I mean, you know, the culture is delightful. It's yummy. It's delicious. You want to be a part of it. It's uh, uh, you, you build an organization on love, not fear. And, you know, people that can't handle that just leave. You know, I mean, we don't ever have to run them off. They think we're crazy and they leave. And, um, but, yeah. Um, and especially as you grow, how do you, how do you gauge how happy your employees are? You know, do you use Glassdoor? Do you use consultants? Do you use internal surveys? Do you just kind of have a feel for it? We use Glassdoor, and we do pretty well on it. <laughs> well, you know, some of the online services like that can turn into uh, just kind of gripe sessions. Mm. And, and then you can get a little flock of the same type of trolls that go to a certain thing. I tell you, the greatest tool I know of is the Great Place to Work Institute's um, Fortune 100 list, uh, exhaustive survey. There's how many questions? Um, 60 questions that um, uh, delve into all aspects of, of trust. They call it the, the Fortune Trust uh, Index. And so we have every employee, Fortune doesn't make you have every employee do that, but they come in and anonymously have hundreds of your employees take that test. That's how they decide that you're number 21 this year. We were number one twice, we were number two twice, and yeah, we've been on the list for 16 years, 15 years in a row. But we have every employee take that, and then you can see exactly what you need to work on. Uh, you can see, and you know, the overall score that we get each year is in the mid to high 90s. I mean, it's so, Oh, so uh, I think that's the most scientific, exhaustive way. I thought we would do our own survey like that, but the Fortune one is so good that why reinvent the wheel? They've been perfecting this thing forever. And that's everybody. That's not just one. I mean, even the container store has a few disgruntled farmer employees, and if they get together on the same site, you can go, whoa, you know. <laughs> but but if, you, if, if you poll everybody exhaustively, I think you get a better, more favorable response. And you can learn that this store may have a management problem because they're not scoring as well as all the other stores, or this department is, or this, this area here doesn't seem to understand uh, uh, whatever, because we passionately want everybody to understand everything, and that kind of tells you where you need to, to work on some of it. You know, speaking of workplace environment, I don't know if you know this, a couple of brothers founded The Motley Fool, and we have a lot of spouses who actually work here together, and you work with Sharon, your spouse. Uh, you guys have been working for, together for, what, 35 years now? Yeah, well, we don't like to use that number. That, 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 <laughs> that was my dad, that wasn't <laughs> sorry, me. Sorry, sorry so, about that. Yeah. Yeah. A, a large <laughs> number of years, some years. Uh, so, what's, what's it like working with your life? How do you, how do you balance that work life? I love it. I, I really, uh, I think Sharon... Um, Garrett Boone and I, our old partner who's now retired, get a lot of the credit, but it's really Sharon that has, I think she's the best merchant in retail, and to, to watch her work, to be able to work with her, it's like watching Monet painting the water lilies or something, I'm just so Oh, you, are, you have been married for 35 yeah. years, well done. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we get to go to trade shows all over the world together and, and, and work with manufacturers to develop products uh, on an exclusive basis for the container stores. It's so, it's so joyful. And people say, well, that sounds like a bad idea. No, I mean, 100 years ago, people had the family mercantile business, the family farm. I've always said the container store is a little bit like the family farm, 
we're so long-term oriented. What we do well today helps us five and 10 and 15 years down the road. And um, so we have a lot of couples in the container store. We don't have any rules against that. You know, you can have whatever romantic thing you want. Because what could Sharon and I say about that? So they're just, they're all over the place. It happens all the time. So. All right, so um, <laughs> don't know. So I got I got this uh, you know flyer pamphlet in the mail uh, the other day. Actually, both me and my wife got got this in the mail. So it got me thinking about your marketing and just your your general overall strategy. And I mean, you strike me as a, a company that's very based on intuition with with some data as well. Uh, if I had to pick one or the other, I mean, you'll, you'll be able to answer it. But so I thought, well, how do you how do you determine whether this particular pamphlet's successful, and then, you know, looking bigger picture, your overall marketing scheme. You know, how do you, how do you do what you do marketing-wise? Yeah, well, the travel sale um, just started, and um, we there's kind of a hole in the market for travel goods. There's not not very many. Really, there's no place to go get great travel, and so we think our Eagle Creek brands and the, the travel stuff that we sell, we think they're the smartest, they're the lightest weight, the most intelligent, you know, the greatest zippers. It's the greatest luggage there is. And um, um, we're kind of building that part of our business. It used to be a small part. And each year we introduce people with the luggage sale. We put a lot of it on sale. And then they come back and buy um, more and more of it. But any, we have a very robust database of our customers. And um, you kind of learn by what they uh, buy when they choose to share that information you know, with us. So that um, if you're not sending them needless things that they're not interested in. You know what they want. You know what their preferences are. And that's, that's the great thing about marketing and direct mail uh, today versus 20 or 30 years ago. It's, uh, it's so much more sophisticated than it used to be. Um, in fact, we, we're starting a, a program. Uh, uh, after all these years, we're finally doing a, a, a loyalty program, a frequent flyer type program. We call it POP, Perfectly Organized Perks, yeah, but uh, um, you think I could remember a three-letter a three deal, right? But um, the problem with most of those programs in retail is that retailers are giving away too much gross margin. They're, they're, they're not designed well. So that's why we didn't have one for all these years. But what we found out is our customer, people don't like the container store. They love the container store. So they don't want a discount. What they want is they want more love, more hugs, more information, more communication. They want to have the ability to interact with us more or, or talk to Sharon and the buyer about their attitudes about this product or whatever. So, and, and we understand that. I mean, I'm kind of a big food person, and so um, I don't want a discount on one of Danny Meyer's restaurants in New York. I just want to be able to uh, talk to them about how I grow basil and I like this pesto. You know, you want your favorite places. And so... It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing very, very well with that. And uh, we started in California, if you can pass the privacy laws in California. And then we're going to be rolling it out nationwide uh, uh, this year. And we can already see that it both raises average ticket and it does very strongly what it's designed to do, which is increase frequency so that, um, you know, customers are coming back maybe one and a half times more per year if they're a pop. Uh, when, when you sign up for the program, you become a pop star. You know, and so, oh, but it's a fun thing, and and you don't give up a lot of needless margin. There's some perks involved, but it's mostly just 
more contact with the people who are, you know, big fans of the Container Store. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking, so let's continue with this data stuff. Uh, at lunch, you were talking about how customers in Manhattan wouldn't buy ornament containers because no one in Manhattan had the room to save their Christmas ornaments. They're just tossing them I out. I couldn't understand it. We, we didn't sell any ornament storage boxes <laughs> that week after Christmas, and they throw it all away and buy it again shame. next year. That's why. Just a shame. <laughs> well, what other, what other patterns are out there? Are, are people in Texas buying, I don't know, what would people in Texas buy? Chili uh, con holders? Containers well, for... <laughs> we always said if this concept of work in, work in Dallas, where we started, it'll work anywhere, right? right. So, but it's, uh, it's fantastically boring. Um, the, good, this good. product, I think it's a little bit like maybe Gap jeans and t-shirts. Back when Gap was a brand new concept, you know, you had the college student and the millionaire that bought the same, you know, it's basic, fundamental, well-designed, simple product, and it sells almost precisely the same in, in Midtown Manhattan as it does in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, Miami and Seattle, it doesn't matter. And so I wish there were more regional differences. Uh, it would be more fun as a merchant to be able to uh, uh, deal with that, but they, they're, they're basic, uh, last a lifetime type products that seem to sell the, uh, in the same ratio uh, everywhere. Mm. You mentioned the words fantastically boring. So I'm about to get to the wonky part of this interview. Uh, for, for some of us, it'll be nice. Uh, so looking at your balance sheet, right? When you, uh, when you came public, Leonard Green and Partners, you mentioned your, your private equity folks, they controlled, you know, they had over 50% of the stock of Container Store. Mm -hmm. And you also have a, a good amount of debt, a lot of debt. So looking five years from now, you know, what, what does your balance sheet look like, you know, in those two metrics? Well, you know, what, we're, we're a brand new IPO public company, but we were a private equity company. And so, um, obviously, the nature of private equity companies are that they're leveraging debt. And so our management team kind of drew a line in the sand and said, um, we, we're not going to have, we're not going to stick around and run this company if, if the debt is beyond this level. And we picked a level that everybody thought was terrible. Well, this was kind of at the peak of the private equity bubble about seven years ago. And um, so it's a very manageable level of debt, we feel like. Um, we just raised our... Uh, guidance on our square footage growth for, um, you know, from 10% minimum square footage growth per year to 12%. And we spent most of our history growing even faster than that, so we're, we're comfortable that can happen. But in spite of that growth level, uh, we're a lot less in love with uh, the magic of leverage than our, uh, uh, than our Leonard Green friends. And so we'll be steadily paying down that debt as well as, as growing. Um, most of the CapEx dollars go, goes to new store growth, and, and so um, the, the, the sort of the limiting factor to how many stores uh, you can open in a year has to do with um, um, how many you can do and, how and, and still stay free cash flow positive. And so that's why we're always pulling for more real estate uh, retail development. You know, there's still only about 10 or 15% of the retail real estate development in this country as there was in the two years prior to the Great Recession. The more retail real estate development happens, the more turnkey the container stores and many other retailers' deals become, and then you can open that many more stores on the same finite supply of CapEx dollars. But um, I think the trick is to grow at a kind of a sector-leading rate and pay down that debt. And of course, um, uh, with scale, uh, all of your uh, debt to whatever ratios become better and better and then even more as you uh, steadily you know pay it down but you know we've we've uh, we've dealt with that level for 
uh, a long time. We really believe it's moderate, very manageable. Uh, it's just a different philosophy. You know, suddenly you're um, in, in the private equity world. Everybody thought it was pretty light level, and then, then suddenly now it's uh, hmm. So. So when you look across your business today, what are two or three metrics you use to gauge its health? And maybe how have those metrics changed as you went from private to public? I haven't seen a lot of change. You know, we, we, um, uh, we used to pay a lot of uh, attention to EBITDA. That's what you do if you're a private equity company. And so we still uh, 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 report in, in uh, EPS and, and, and just, uh, you know, uh, EBIT, but also EBITDA for kind of historical uh, purposes because that's what we used to uh, pay so much attention to. We, 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 we do this employee satisfaction thing that we, you know, that we talk about to, to a great level, uh, employee turnover. Uh, we're in an industry retail where the average uh, retailer has over 100% per year employee turnover. You can't train anybody when that's happening. You can't do anything. When, you know, there's no productivity. There's no innovation. And, and our, our, our turnover usually is at or below 10%. And of course, that's more readily achieved when there's high unemployment. But I mean, oh, irregardless of unemployment, it's, it's, it's usually single digit, which is uh, very unusual. So we're a very metric-driven company. We look at everything. I think that's why our um, uh, quarterly calls are, are so long and our press releases are so, people say, God, that was so long. You know, and it was like, Hey, we're all about communication. We want you to know everything. You know, we, I, I wish the calls were like four hours. But, uh, but actually, what I've learned is that most of the analysts really don't want to hear what you want to tell them. They just want you to shut up so they can ask you the question they want, to, they want to ask. And we're like, okay, we'll do that, but you have to listen to us too. So we're having a lot of fun with that. And it's funny, some people, some people say, that's great that you do that. I spent a lot of time talking to the Herb Kelleher's, the Southwest Airlines guy, and the Jim Senegal's, of the you know, how do you be the best public company CEO you can? And so you get different advice from those guys than you get from the institutional investors. It's been it's been very interesting. So you just listen to everybody. But can you tell we're kind of communicative? <laughs> yeah. All right, one one more before Mark gets us started on the rapid fire part of the uh, interview. Uh, so you know, probably we're going to see if I'm really quick on my feet with this rapid fire. <laughs> You can slow it down. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, people will say, you know, Amazon.com, you know, you've always got the threat of the internet. You've got Bed Bath & Beyond. They're one of your primary competitors, as in your 10K. Uh, but, you know, when, when you look big picture, you know, what, what keeps you up at night where 10 years from now, 20 years from now, say, oh, that, that sunk us? Yeah, well, we don't, we don't really feel like we have any, well, we don't have any direct competition. You know, I mean, um, a mass merchant or even a, uh, any of the people that you named, uh, it would be like having a convenience store in front of a supermarket. Or It's not really competition. They, they dabble. We have 120 different uh, shoe stores. You know, we have hundreds of different hangers. I mean, it, so... Uh, Back in the 80s, there were hundreds of people that knocked us off and, and, and opened specialty stores that looked a lot like this, but they all went away. And I think they went away because we sell solutions, not items. And uh, we have this great, well-trained people that are, we want you to say, my kid's toy storage area is driving me crazy. Um, we don't want you to come in and say, I want that item. Then, then everything we stand for is really kind of uh, um, um, wrong. So. Um, we feel like, you know, 
the crate, uh, crate and barrel guy, Gordon Siegel, always taught me to stay humble, stay paranoid, and we do. But we feel like that we're very well insulated from giant online retailers because in the first place, the vast majority of our product are proprietary in nature. You can't showroom a proprietary product. You know, um, and, and the way we do that is by having these long-standing relationships with the best manufacturers and, and, and housewares. And, um, and, and we create exclusive product with them all around the world just for the container store because they want to build what we think needs to be built. They don't want to build what they want. They want us to tell them what to build. And so the reciprocity of that is that we get an exclusive on it. And if it's wood, we do it in Estonia. And if it's uh, labor intensive, we do it in Vietnam or China. And it, that allows us to have product that nobody else has and, and insulates us from, um, you know, from the online um, uh, business. We, we have to, um, now that everybody's decided that bricks and mortar is uh, dubious again, you know. I mean, so you ha you better give them a, give them a reason to come to your store. Uh, you know, we're we're trying to sell solutions over the internet. I think most people won't want to try that. That's a that's a tough thing to do, and we do pretty well with it. But boy, we can really sell solutions. Get a get a closet that, that is perfect for you that you're so excited about. You feel like dancing. That's our goal to get people emotional about these things and. So there's this incredible creative pro uh, process that takes place between our salespeople and the customers that results in a very emotional thing happening. And um, um, that is what would get us if we ever lost that. But I tell you, um, it's the, the stores that we're opening now, um, about three or four years ago, we figured out that we can open in, in markets the size of Indianapolis, Raleigh, Charlotte. We used to think we had to be in LA, Chicago, Atlanta, big, big, big cities. Indianapolis loves us probably more than LA, you know? And, and it's a lot cheaper, the real estate. So, so we're getting like what we call 23% four walls EBITDA first year uh, out of all those locations. But the, the quality of the staff and the quality of the customer-employee interaction is I think the highest in our industry with all these new stores. Never before have new stores uh, contributed so much to our profitability. Um, that's why we're trying to open just so, so many of them. Once you discover that a million and a half greater metropolitan area uh, market is great for you and, and you can make 23% four walls EBITDA first year, there's a lot of those out there. I mean, there's a lot of them. So we're doing that as quickly as we, uh, as we can uh, operationally. HR-wise, that's our wheelhouse. I mean, we we can, um, you know, we we can grow it at, at this 12% uh, plus square footage level uh, readily. Uh, what we want is a continuing uh, continuing uh, macro economic environment to improve, so that the commercial retail real estate uh, market in, improves right along with it. Plus, back before the Great Recession, we didn't really have the kind of bell of the ball aura that we do now with the commercial with the retail real estate developers we're, we're like the first or second call of every great center now and we're getting something that's a little bit like the old department store anchor pricing in these centers so that makes you want to expand more too and uh, so we feel very good about that um, um, the, the world's not going to completely abandon uh, bricks and mortar and do everything online, uh, but you better give them a reason to come to you, you know, to come to your bricks and mortar store. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, better, better give them that reason. I, I feel, we feel like that uh, we understand that well, that's, that's our strength. 
and that we're, we're doing it better than we ever have with these new stores. All right. Did uh, I answer the question? Yeah, totally. No. Definitely. Um, so we only have a couple more minutes left before we turn it over to Q&A from the audience. So let's just do some quick rapid fire questions. R rapid fire doesn't mean you have to answer quickly, but you know, just off the top of your head. So what's the best business advice you ever received? Was it that stay, uh, stay humble, stay paranoid? Or, uh, you know, um, talents, the whole ball game. People are, people are the most important thing. Favorite retail concept outside of the container store, and you can't say Whole Foods. Italy, <laughs> um, you know the uh, the Italian thing in New York. Italy, it's like a Disney World of food and wine, and it's awesome. If you were running Whole Foods, what would you do differently? <laughs> Well, I'm on their board, so I have an opportunity to do that. Not much. I think they're awesome. I think they're great and uh, wonderful, loyal customers. Everybody's so, you know, yeah, they're, um, I, I would just remain true to who and what Whole Foods is because it's a, uh, I mean, imagine having grocery stores like that in Texas, for God's sakes. I mean, can you believe nobody would ever dream of that? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like Italy, you know, so. <laughs> Well, you can, you can pass on this one if it'll get you in too much trouble, but one retail concept that you just don't get or, or retail trend or... Dollar stores. I don't get it. I mean, I, I just don't get it. I'm sorry. But, you know, it does really well, I think. Uh, I don't get them. Um, what was the best business book you ever read? Um, it is a business book, too, but Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. I think, you know, what Danny Meyer, and he's on our board now because I admire him so much, but he, his concept of hospitality is changing what the rest of us mean when we talk about customer service. Setting the table, Danny Meyer is just awesome. One of your concepts is that a great employee is 3X a, uh, a good employee. What are you 3X at? I always say that the only things I'm really good at are organizing closets and fly fishing. So <laughs> probably, probably those. So. Find a way Watch to out, REI. Yeah. Uh, hardest part about getting from one store to, what is it now, 63? And the hardest part you see uh, coming down the line of getting from 63 to, I don't know, 300? Um, you know, you've got Fortune Magazine running around saying we're the best company to work for in America. So when you open a new store in a new market, you, you only hire 2 or 3% of the people that apply for the jobs. It's... it's, it's uh, it's not hard to get the right location. It's, it's not hard to expand um, at that uh, clip. The, the hardest uh, thing is having so many, such a sup, super abundance of opportunity, not just new store locations, but uh, every business has a finite supply of, um, um, you know, human and financial resources. So the best partner in Canada or, or Europe wants, you know, I mean, just the wise selection, and I think our management team's good at this, the, the, the wise selection uh, of how to utilize the, it's a pretty good definition of management, you know, the, 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 uh, how are you going to utilize your financial, your finite supply of financial and human resources, and which of these incredible opportunities are you going to take? I mean, people want to build product, okay, here we're going to do this type of closet, we'll, we'll go to evolve to that type of closet. Um, that's the most joyful part of it, and that's the most important part of it. You know, you're, you're trying to decide where to deploy 
your fabulous people and your financial resources sort of in, um, in order of importance to the long-term benefit of the company. Uh, after this one, I think we'll be opening up to audience questions. That wasn't a very rapid fire. I'm not doing this very well. You're doing great. No, it's this, is, this is perfect. Yeah, it's way better than I thought it was going to go. <laughs> for, for me. For me. I can see why. <laughs> All right. Keeping on the personal personal side, uh, when the next time I go to the container store in uh, Clarendon, Arlington, Virginia, uh, with my wife, and we walk in, what's one little nugget that I can say? the CEO of the container store told me about your operations that you know the average person walking in doesn't quite grasp. Something special you guys do that, you know. Well, I, you know, I, I think most people do grasp it, but, 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 we're, but what we're most excited about is that the, the person that comes up and helps you cares as much about your storage and organization problem and finding a solution for it and cares as much about their fellow workers and cares as much about their company, you're not going to believe me as I do, but they, they do. I mean, you know, when I go to the stores, it just brings tears. To, I mean, God, the, the passion. The, the, everybody's worked there. You know, people join the company and they never leave. So, of course, they care as much as I do. They've been there for 12 years, you know, and it's, um, I just think that's unusual. I, I love retail. I study. I can talk to you about all the retail stores in the world and, you don't see that very much. I mean, you don't see the passion, the devotion, the love. And, and that's why the service is so great, because they do care so much. You know, it's ultimately, uh, hospitality or service uh, just comes from how much that waiter or that auto mechanic or that guy that cleans your swimming pool or whoever, you know, cares uh, about it. And so I think we're off the charts on that. And it just makes me feel like that uh, we're doing a lot right. That is our show for today and for the week. As always, you can tweet at us. We are at TMF Financials. You can shoot us an email, WTMI at fool.com. Tell us how you're liking the new show, how you like the interviews, what can we do better uh, for this show to be even better as it has been the last couple months. So uh, we will see you on Monday.